Welcome to the sermon ministry of River Community Church, a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana. Our purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org. Our reading this morning is from Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, Do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Well, good morning again. I am happy to have all of us here today as we go through one of uh, my favorite passages in the book of Mark, a beautiful passage that I think has many truths for us today. We have been going through the book of Mark verse by verse uh, over the last uh, six or seven weeks. We started with it in Easter. And uh, we've seen as we go through this book that Mark is trying to impress upon us two key questions. One, who is Jesus? And second, what does it mean to be a follower of him? The last couple of weeks we have uh, seen Mark focus on that second question, seeing that following Jesus is not mere words, but is a commitment that shows itself in a transformed life one that can demonstrate itself in the fruit that we bear. This week, Mark begins a series of stories that have Jesus and the disciples as the primary focus. In each of these stories, we are going to see Jesus reveal even more clearly and more powerfully who he is, and as he does that, raise the question, raise the stakes of what does it mean to follow Jesus. Each of these uh, revelations are going to work to press the question upon the uh, disciples of what does it mean to follow Jesus? Now, when I was in my previous career, we had a org chart. We had a whole bunch of engineers, and I I was at the bottom of that org chart. Um, And there were a lot of of different positions. There was vice this and vice vice and manager and manager of manager and all these different things. Helps you know how low you are. But the org chart uh, was a lifesaver. I figured out very quickly when I had two bosses come to me with something that needed to be done, how to figure out which of those two bosses I needed to work on first. Because you never want to be caught doing the work for the boss that's under the other boss that's also giving you something to do. That never makes any sense. And so what we really have in this story is Jesus basically putting in front of his disciples 
the master org chart for them to understand who he is and what it means to follow him. Every single one of us, I think, has an org chart written on our heart. It determines whose orders we follow, what gets prioritized, what's most important. The question that this text asks us is, who's at the top of your org chart? I don't doubt that everybody has Jesus in their org chart. But who's at the top of your org chart? You see, what we're going to see in this story is what most people, even the disciples, have at the top of their org chart is fear. Is something that they're afraid of. Because the fear that we have controls us, defines us, determines how far we will go before we say, that's not safe. And it sets limits. It sets conditions upon us. And we work very hard to follow our fear. And so at the top of many of our org charts is fear. And that is what this passage is wanting to overturn. In this passage, we are going to discover four faith lessons that Jesus' disciples are going to learn from a great fear, a storm. Our story today gives us a powerful demonstration of Jesus' identity as his disciples are brought into this sudden and very dangerous storm. So what do we see when these storms come? The, the, the idea of a storm, I think, is a universal experience. It doesn't have to be wind and waves, it doesn't have to be a boat, it doesn't have to be the Sea of Galilee, but every single one of us knows something about that sudden, terrifying calamity that we call a storm. We can experience storms in every sphere of our life that takes what is normal and comfortable and secure and rips it to shreds. I think because of that, this account welcomes us to come right into the boat with these disciples Bring our fears, our worst storms, right into the boat with these disciples and allow the faith lessons that the disciples receive from Jesus apply directly to us. We know storms can happen in the form of natural disasters. Storms can happen in the form of money problems. Storms can happen in our career. Suddenly, that's your last day. You weren't prepared. Storms can happen in our family. What seems smooth and comfortable and easygoing is suddenly wrenched by bad news. In relationships, suddenly that relationship wants to dump you. Our health. We're all just living in that little fear of, is that going to be something when I talk to the doctor about it? Or is that just, is that just nothing? Don't marry a doctor, by the way. For her sake and for mine, I became a horrible hypochondriac that first six months of marriage. Every little funny feeling, missed heartbeat, whatever it was, until Becky just, maybe you're dying. So I don't ask her anymore. She doesn't take the fear away like I had hoped. And I promise you, if you want to use her for that reason, she'll give you the same answer. So... She, she doesn't give out free advice very often. Um, 
So how do we normally react to storms? How do you react to that sudden change, that crisis? And why? Why does the fear get so large? Some of you are in a storm right now. A big storm, and you don't know how you're going to get through it. But I can tell you that some of you have a storm coming, and you're not right now prepared. So we all need to grasp the lessons that are taught to us in this passage today. What Jesus teaches us in the storm is that the faith he calls us to is a faith that can provide great comfort and courage in our life. The faith that we are called to can set us free from the fear of any storm we face because it will get our org chart right. Is that a faith you want for yourself? Let us now turn to this passage and go through it in detail to discover these four faith lessons that we learn from storms. The first faith lesson comes from us in verses 35 to 37, where we are going to learn that storms happen to true followers of Jesus. Storms happen to true followers of Jesus. Now this already runs right up against some popular theology. There are many people that offer Jesus and preach Jesus, promising if you have Jesus, you will have smooth sailing. You will have calm waters. Better than that, you'll have ease and comfort, wealth and health. The reason that you don't have that is because your faith in Jesus is not adequate. So increase your faith. We recognize, though, that storms happen to true followers of Jesus. Look at verse 36, the key little phrase. The disciples get in the boat, and leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat. Now, we have been talking about this crowd over the last several weeks because the crowd is is in Mark's gospel, and the question that Mark is always putting in front of us is, what do we make of the crowd? We know why the crowd is there. The crowd is fascinated with Jesus. The crowd is coming to Jesus to get a healing, to get an exorcism, to get a fix for some problem in their life. That is what the crowds are doing. They are seeking Jesus to get the smooth sailing. The crowd is there because Jesus can give them that ease, that comfort, that health that they want. But I think it is interesting in the narrative that the crowd is left behind. The disciples get in the boat. And the boat represents the true followers Of Jesus. I think what we see with the boat is that Jesus does not come to us on our terms. We come to Jesus on his terms. Jesus calls his followers into the boat to go with him. And the thing is that those in the boat have a lot harder time than those who don't get in the boat. They go into the storm. Being in the will of God then is dangerous. 
Being in the will of God can be very dangerous. Jesus commands his disciples, let us go to the other side. He is at the edge of the Sea of Galilee. He is wanting to cross the Sea of Galilee. And there's a couple things that make this request extra ominous. One, it is the Sea of Galilee, which is a very uh, turbulent body of water. It is kind of in a bowl, uh, uh, in a canyon. And so what can happen is great winds from the desert can just come down all of a sudden into this bowl of the Sea of Galilee and raise up a humongous sea storm in a split second. A horrible storm can happen on the Sea of Galilee at any moment. And then also, Jesus does not, I think, uh, provide the best time for them to be going across the Sea of Galilee because it is already after a full day of teaching. He says, I want us to get in the boat and at evening, at dusk, at sunset, they get on the boat to cross the sea. So the disciples don't even have the ability to see if a storm is coming. They can't even predict if the conditions are acceptable. And so it is an ominous time for them to be out to sea. And what happens when they are out to sea? They, are, they apparently have gotten out to sea a, a fairly good way. The Sea of Galilee is several miles wide. We know it's not immediate because Jesus is asleep. It takes a little time to fall asleep. It takes a little time to get that pillow just right. So they're out in the middle, even for Jesus. He's got, you know, he's got to get that pillow right. You know, he's, it's, it's okay. He's like us in that respect, um, in, all, in many respects. He is, uh, he's asleep, and in the middle of this body of water, when they are far from shore, this great windstorm arose. A great windstorm arose. It was high waves, high wind. And they are right there with Jesus. They are in the center of the will of God. They are following his commandments. They are with Jesus. And it is because they are with Jesus and not just part of the crowds that they are in the great windstorm. Something just to note at this point, perhaps to think about as we always continue to want to assess, are we crowds or are we disciples, is this question, is your faith leading you out of your comfort zone? Is your faith pressing you out of where you feel safe? If your faith is not doing that, maybe you're not in the boat. Because the disciples get in the boat, and they leave what is safe and secure at the shore. And I think there is a major image there for us to contemplate. So the crowds, we we are familiar with them, they are pursuing Jesus to get his healing, to get his benefits. They have, as I have said in previous sermons, come to Jesus because Jesus is eminently useful. If I have Jesus, I have what I need. I have what I, I want in that he gives me the benefits of my health and my, my uh, comfort. He gives me a great story. He's a fascinating person to be around. But the gift of following Jesus for the disciples is Jesus. They don't stay on the shore because Jesus doesn't stay on the shore. Their gift is Jesus. So they get into the boat to stay with Jesus. 
The gift of following Jesus is Jesus. Look, look at, at some of the dynamics that occur from getting into the boat. They go away from the crowd. There's a lot of fame. There's a lot of uh, prestige of being one of Jesus' disciples in the crowd. But they don't stay where the fame is. They don't stay where the prestige is. They get in the boat. Where are they going? As we see next week, across the sea is to go into pig country. They're going on a scandalous mission. They're going to the side of the sea that all self-respecting Jews stay away from. Jews and pigs don't go well together. You cannot get a bacon cheeseburger in Israel. It's, it's, it's a hard lesson, but it's true. They are going toward the Gentiles. They are going out of the popular path. They are doing this, experiencing hard work. They've already spent all day with Jesus, all day with Jesus doing all the ministry that Jesus has wanted to do, and I don't think he takes it slow. But they're also at nighttime being told, let's cross the sea, let's get these boats and cross the sea. It is not restful to take a boat across the Sea of Galilee. That takes a lot of work and a lot of attention. So even after a full day, they go to a full night. And they do that risking their lives, knowing the dangers that are in front of them. Why? Why do the disciples get in the boat when it takes them away from the crowds that makes them popular, when it takes them away from the shore that makes them comfortable, when it takes them into a country that they don't want to go into? Why do they get into the boat? All those negatives don't stop them from getting in the boat. Because Jesus is beautiful to them. They're not here to get something out of Jesus. They are here because they want Jesus. They want to know Jesus. They want to be with Jesus. They want to absorb Jesus. They want Jesus, full stop. That is a dramatically different approach to Jesus than the crowds. And it separates the crowds from the disciples. And we cannot miss that. Are you in the crowd? Or are you a disciple? Is Jesus beautiful to you? You guys all know that uh, we, we are not native to Baton Rouge. I love Baton Rouge. Coming down to Baton Rouge was uh, a great experience. But my homeland is Kansas City. I spent 35 years, 36 years in Kansas City. Started my family in Kansas City. It was scary when God's call was, go to Baton Rouge. Everything that is comfortable, everything that I know. I had the map of the whole city in my head. I could tell you the best pizza place. I could tell you where you go to get your car fixed. All of that's new knowledge. It was scary packing everything up in the U-Haul and moving down here. Now, it was a wonderful experience. It's been the greatest adventure of my life. But following Jesus does not mean you're never taken into scary and uncomfortable and insecure situations. If your faith keeps you comfortable, maybe it's not in the boat. Is Jesus beautiful to you? Listen to how Paul describes Jesus. Paul had such a, an awesome life. He was surpassing and exceptional in so many ways. He had a beautiful life. He was prestigious. He was educated. He was respected. 
But he tells us in Philippians this, chapter 3, verses 8, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That describes a Jesus that is beautiful. Do you want to know Jesus so much that you want to suffer to know some of what he experienced to save you? That's clarifying. But that is the first faith lesson I think we see here. The second faith lesson is that we learn that storms can test our faith in Jesus. Storms can test our faith in Jesus. This storm was a serious storm. The disciples fear for their lives. We have some objective criteria and some subjective criteria that tell us exactly how severe this storm was. The objective criteria is the boat is filling. The, the boat is filling with water. It is turning into a bathtub. It is about to sink. Time is ticking. It is a short clock. These boats don't hold a ton. Second, real fishermen who have spent their life on the Sea of Galilee have made their living on the Sea of Galilee fishing in this kind of boat are scared to death. They are absolutely panicking. Their experience, their subjective knowledge of this sort of storm is making them go crazy scared. They are helpless and they are hopeless as they are facing this storm. And as they face this helpless and hopeless situation, their faith is shaken very deep, just like storms do. When a storm hits, we wonder why. We wonder how could this happen. We wonder where, where's our security, where's our comfort, where's our ground. Everything is shaking. Storms shake our faith deep. You ask deep probing questions when you're facing a storm. How can I know God is with me if this is happening? What good is God being with me? If this is happening, these sorts of things come into their mind. There is, at the end of um, our service today, we're going to sing a hymn called It Is Well. And it was actually a personal request of mine. It Is Well is a hymn that was written by Horatio Spafford, who was a good Presbyterian lay elder. Uh, in the, I guess, 19th century. Uh, big fan of Dwight L. Moody. Uh, had a beautiful family and uh, was preparing to take a summer vacation to Europe. And uh, he got delayed with some work at business 
But he put his wife and his four daughters on a boat to send them across the Atlantic with a plan to join up with them shortly to have their summer vacation. A man deep in faith. A man who loved Jesus. A man who had done many things demonstrating his love for Jesus. Was generous towards the people of God. That boat that has his wife and his four daughters was hit by another boat in the middle of the Atlantic and sunk in less than 12 minutes. And Horatio Spafford lived without news of what exactly happened until those survivors get to the other side and then he gets a telegram from his wife, saved alone. All four of his daughters drowned in that shipwreck. And all he had was his wife to grieve with. That sort of event happened to a true follower of Jesus. And you can imagine how shaking and disturbing that was. Why would all four of my daughters be taken? How, how does that fit with the, the bargain of faith? The disciples' question in verse 38, I believe, shows us how our faith is tested in storms. Two doubts can arise. The, the, the disciples come to Jesus in the middle of the storm and they say, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And I think in that answer we see, see their disbelief. We see these two doubts that arise when the storm comes and the storm overwhelms. The first is in that word, teacher. They come to Jesus and they say, teacher. Well, teachers are good for a lot of things. But saving you in a boat wreck, not one of them. So when they say teacher, they are saying exactly what they understand Jesus to be. He is a great teacher. A teacher full of God's truth. But if he is only a teacher, then he does not have the ability to really save us. And so the first doubt that comes in the storm is a question of Jesus' ability. You see, the disciples were operating and revealing in this moment of crisis a limited view of who Jesus was. He was the teacher sent from God. He was given God's truth. He was a mighty prophet. I think when they wake him up, they are not waking him up expecting him to fix the storm. They're expecting him to grab a bucket because they need more hands pailing water. So they look at Jesus, and they do not see him as having the power to save. And the question that we have to put in front of us is, when crisis hits, is Jesus a Savior and Lord in your heart, or is he a distant teacher? If you come to him only thinking he is a great teacher, then you will doubt his ability and your fear will grow. Do you believe Jesus has all the power to save you and care for you? 
The second doubt that can arise comes from the second part of their protest. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? They say to him, Jesus, do you not care that we are perishing? Do you not care that we are perishing? They are questioning Jesus' goodness. I'm not saying that in normal, smooth sailing, that these disciples had any doubt about Jesus' goodness. But when the storm came, and it was overwhelming, what jumped out of their heart was, do you not care? They wondered if Jesus' goodness was intact, because he should care, and he appears to be the absent of caring. He is there sleeping. How can you sleep when we are about to die? And doesn't that question attack us in our storms? If God lets this happen, then how could he possibly care? If God doesn't give me what I earnestly pray for, then how can God really care? Those are questions of his goodness. Now, we are, of course, uh, uh, assessing what is good based on our context, but we are, in these doubts, questioning the very core of who Jesus is. He is a good person. And when we have the storm come, it can even make us not able to see what is patently true, what is the DNA of Jesus. Now we might say, you know what? Uh, I'm not familiar with these two questions. I've never said, teacher. Never said, do you not care? I don't question Jesus' ability. I don't, I don't question Jesus' goodness. I know that. I'm comfortable with that. But there is a way where we can still live out those doubts and never say them. We can still form our life about those doubts without ever saying them. And that's, that's this. We can create our lives in such a way that they never need faith. We can make our lives so insulated by our money by our uh, abilities, by our education, by our pristine families, by all the comforts that we surround with us, that we never actually have to live on faith. That's not true, but that's, that's the bubble that we want to create. And if that is the way that we address the world, creating that bubble so that we never have to live on faith, then what are we doing but questioning Jesus' ability And Jesus' goodness, if your entire life is spent trying to keep yourself from the situation where you ever have to fall upon Jesus in faith and trust in his ability and his goodness to deliver you. You see, when we live a life away from needing faith, we live a life that is shaped by our fears. You can see this in the generational developments or devolution, I think, in parenting patterns. 
There are stories that my dad tells me about what he gets, got to do as a child that are absolutely unacceptable to parents today. I mean, he would just disappear with a gun, <laughs> do all sorts of stuff. And the parents today have to put plastic molds on every single thing so there isn't even a sharp corner for our kids to find. You see, we are taking our kids and we are taking our parenting away from faith. Now, that's just an example. I'm not here criticizing parents. We're, we are, uh, that, that's just something you can see. Our society is building bubbles, and those bubbles are really being built because we want the control and we are being shaped by fears. We are not living with a robust confidence in Jesus' ability and Jesus caring about us in our day-to-day life when what we spend our time doing is building a bigger bubble. I remember going to a, on a mission trip down to Haiti, and uh, they have nothing down there. Everything has got duct tape to hold it together. And we'd, we'd take a, a, a pickup truck drive to uh, across the country, and half the time the pickup breaks down. And the food and the supplies that we are trying to get to this place that desperately needs it is stalled out. But the missionaries that are there, they just, they just know something is going to get fixed. Some other truck is going to come by. Some other way is going to come, and we're going to accomplish the mission. They are living threadbare on the skin of their teeth, And the amazing thing is, their mission is still working. Because they have a God that they depend on showing up. And he shows up. How much of your life depends on God showing up? How much of Monday depends on God Showing up. Our third lesson. We learn that Jesus brings calm. Jesus brings calm. So in the midst of this terrifying storm, Jesus is there sleeping. Jesus is there in a terrifying storm Sleeping. Now that is an image that is astounding. A life-threatening, terrifying storm that is flooding the boat, and we have this image that Jesus is kind of nestled up in a fetal-like position on a pillow, blissfully asleep. That's an amazing image. Note, first of all, that this stresses something that I think gets lost a lot of times in evangelical preaching. Jesus is the God-man. He is the incarnated Son of God. But he possesses real humanity. Why is he sleeping? Because he's tired. He is worn out. He is not Superman. He sleeps Because he needs sleep in his human condition. 
And so we have Jesus there sleeping. And maybe the question that we should have instead of do you not care is why isn't he afraid? Why isn't he panicking? Why is he sleeping when everything is going down? It is important that we recognize that Jesus came in human flesh because when we recognize that, we recognize that Jesus is the model of what it means to be perfect humanity, to be perfectly trusting in God. The reason that Jesus isn't afraid is because he has his peace in God, not in the waves or the lack of them. His peace is not circumstantial. His peace is entirely grounded in his rest in God. And so he is sleeping because of his peace in God. He knows and trusts and doesn't worry. I think it is a comfort to recognize that while we panic, and we have all gone through panicking times, God is never panicked. There is never a crisis or a storm, a calamity or a consequence that comes upon your life where God says, what are we going to do? He is never panicked. He is seated, resting upon a throne, unsurprised and unperturbed by the biggest catastrophe you can imagine because as out of control as it may appear to our perspective, God is always in control. Never surprised, never overwhelmed. And when we have that God firmly resting in our hearts, that peace which transcends all understanding is ours in Christ Jesus. Like the disciples, then, we need to remember two things as storms come. First, we have Jesus' presence. Jesus never left the disciples. He's there in the boat. He's asleep. He may appear to be doing nothing, but Jesus is with them, never apart from them. He is with us in the boat. He is with us in the storm. As a true believer in Christ, this is the reality. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul says, Do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? The one who can sleep in the boat rests in your heart if you have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And that means there is no diagnosis, there is no storm, there is no financial crisis. There is no relationship implosion that Jesus makes you go through alone. He is with you. He is present. Now, he may sometimes feel absent, but nonetheless, he is with us always. There is a a fascinating story that is given to us by Corey Tenboom when she was in a, a horrible concentration camp with her, I believe it was her sister, Betsy. They were put in this awful uh, barracks. Living conditions are horrible. It's it's the Nazis. They they uh, they're making everything miserable. Every condition is deplorable. They are suffering. They are underfed. They are 
uh, afraid for their lives. They are tormented. And yet, Corey Tenboom and her sister Betsy are praying, thankgivings to God as they are in this barracks. And one of the things that was in this barracks was an awful infestation of fleas. Bitten and bitten and bitten by fleas. It was unceasing and unbearable. And Betsy told Corey Tenboom, we're going to thank God for the fleas. Corey Tenboom, how can we thank God for the fleas? These are the worst. We can't thank God for the fleas. But she follows her sister's lead, Betsy, and she thanks God for the fleas. And incidentally, as time goes on, they are able to have a Bible study and bring many of these other women who are bearing this storm into the peace of God by giving them uh, time in the Word every night, and they are being unaffected and undisturbed by the guards who hate Bible study and don't want this to happen. And it is discovered by Betsy that the reason that they are able to have that Bible study, that they are able to feast on God's word, and they are able to comfort one another as a family of God in the distress of a concentration camp, is because the guards will not go in that barracks because the fleas are so bad. Do you see that God sent the fleas to protect them from the Nazis and their mistreatment and to provide for them the ability to do gospel ministry. God is even in the fleas. God is never leaving us alone. When Jesus leaves this earth, he tells his disciples, Lo, I will be with you until the end of the age. So we have his presence, but also we have his peace. Jesus was sleeping. Our comfort is that Jesus doesn't ever panic. He is the picture of rest for us to have. We know that he is on the throne. In him we are secure. As uh, Paul tells us again in Philippians chapter 4, Do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It was this truth that comforted Horatio Spafford as later he got on a boat to cross the sea to visit his wife, and the captain told, the man, told Horatio that we are about to pass the place where the ship sunk and your daughters died. Spafford wrote to his sister after they got to, to, uh, across the sea these words. On Thursday last, we passed over the spot where she went down, in mid-ocean, the water three miles deep. But I do not think of our dear ones there. They are safe, folded, the dear lambs. You see, the peace of Christ is what comforted Horatio Spafford because he knew that his precious daughters, though they went into the waters, did not get separated from the hands of of the Savior, and they are even now wrapped and held in the bosom of their Lord at a place of peace where they can be so sound that they can sleep, resting, because the gospel gives us a Jesus 
who gives us his peace. And his peace cannot be disquieted by the storm. It cannot even be disturbed by death. What the gospel gives us is a Jesus who is with us even in the storm. The most, some of the most beautiful words of scripture apply to us when we are in storms and should be pressed into our hearts so that they are ready in those times. Romans 8.35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Fourth, we learn that storms happen to true followers of Jesus. We learn that storms can test our faith in Jesus. We learn that Jesus brings calm forth. We learn that Jesus is greater than the storm. Why, why storms? Why do we face storms? The storm had to come for the disciples to ask the question, who is this that even the winds and the seas obey? That's a major difference in making that confession when you've experienced it from when you just theorize it. You see, Jesus wanted his disciples to be grounded in a faith that truly comforts and gives real courage by showing them that even in the midst of the storm, the one that is in them is greater than the one that is in this world. The one that is in them is bigger and stronger and more powerful than any storm. With a word, a direct command, Jesus wakes up and says, Silence! Be still. He doesn't pray. This is his power. This is his command to the winds and the seas. And the winds and the seas have heard the voice that created them and go still. Because Jesus has that power and that authority with a word to stop the storm and to bring complete quiet and complete calm. And if we believe that that Jesus is in us, we must recognize that the storm he lets us go through is also permitted to teach us something. If he doesn't say those words when you want them to be said, it is because he is using the storm to sift out all of your fears and focus you upon the one who is greater than the storm. Why are you afraid, Jesus says after this? Have you still no faith? Maybe not a very pastoral answer. I, I, you know, Sometimes Jesus is a little harsh. I mean, the word for afraid there is literally, why are you being so cowardly? You know, well, we're just asking for help. <laughs> why are you coming down on us, Jesus? Uh, why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? Jesus locates the disturbance as a question of faith. You see, the org chart was upside down. Fears of storms was higher than trust in Jesus. So there are two lessons that we must take away from this. We are faithless when the storm is our focus. What we fear is what controls us. And second, we are faithful when we fear the one who controls the storm. 
The text goes from a great storm to a great fear. You see, when the disciples were filled with a great fear of Jesus, they didn't even know about the storm any longer. They were in Jesus' presence, and there was nothing else on their mind. If we are filled with the fear of the Lord, we will be emptied of our fear of the storm. So who is this? That is the key question in Mark. Jesus is Lord, is what is being discovered by these disciples. That is a self-involving confession. Meaning if you believe Jesus is Lord, it changes your life, it changes your org chart. Our answer to that question must alter our perspective of everything else. Believing means getting in the boat. Who do you say that Jesus is? Let me finish by going back to that question, do you not care? The disciples asked, do you not care that we are perishing? When we recognize the storm story next to the cross, we see something amazing. The true depth of Jesus' care for his disciples is seen not in his ability to say, be quiet and be still to the winds and the waves, but that he endured the cross on our behalf. Though he commands the winds and the seas and they obey him, he did not stop the nails from going through his hands and his feet. He went through the storm, helpless and hopeless. He went through the storm of God's wrath alone for us. And it is because of that as Horatio Spafford stands over the site where his daughters perished, he was able to say and write these words into this hymn. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Jesus has borne the storm, the ultimate storm, and rose from the dead so that you can face any storm, any calamity, knowing that you are never alone, never without hope, and never out of God's reach. Jesus is with us always so that no matter what we have, whatever happens to us, we have great comfort and great courage. And if that is true, if that is the faith that we have, if that is the Jesus that we believe in, then let me leave with this question. What would following Jesus look like for you if you applied the truth of this passage to your greatest fear? Have you put your trust in Christ? Have you confessed Jesus is Lord and gotten into the boat with him? Have you put your life entirely in his hands? He will never leave you or forsake you. All who trust in Christ can sing in every circumstance. It is well with my soul. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed by this sermon from River Community Church. We are a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana. 
whose purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org.